Hello. Hey. I'm always weary of headphones and such. Uh, this one seems a little bit too high tech for me, so um, I think it's working good. Working good? Awesome. All right. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. We'll, we are continuing our series in Philippians. Um, I'm excited to be here and preach today. Uh, much better position than I was last week at this time. I don't know if you knew, but uh, I was pretty ill for about 20 hours or so. Holly will attest. I had food poisoning, which is a, never a good thing to have. So I'm much better, rather be right here this, this night than what I was last week. Um, like I said, I wasn't here last week. I did listen to Joe's sermon in uh, Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Uh, the title of his sermon was Press On. Um, what we are pressing on to, to know Christ fully, to obtain the fullness of his salvation. And I thought Joe did a great job of um, explaining the fact that we are pressing it on not because we are trying to obtain this, like we could earn salvation, um, but we are pressing on because Christ had loved us first, right? Obeying God, not for salvation, but because Christ has made us his own. He saved us. Um, that's kind of what we talked about last week. That was the last sermon, which leads us to the passage that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, so Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. I'll read. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. We humbly approach your throne, your mercy seat tonight, God. We plead for mercy. We praise you that you have reached down to interact and speak to us by your word. And Lord, we pray the night you would help us understand your word. Open our eyes and open our ears. Open our hearts to what you have spoken to us through your word. Give us clarity. I pray that I would decrease and you would increase tonight, God. Nothing I say would be of my own accord, but it'd be we, it would be you that would be speaking tonight through your word. And it's your son's name that we pray. Amen. So as we walk through these verses, verses 17 through 21, 
there are three things that I want to highlight. First is we are to pattern ourselves after fellow believers. Two, we are to persevere against the enemies of the cross. And finally, we are to patiently wait for Christ. So pattern ourselves after fellow believers is the the first thing we're going to look at tonight. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Remember that Paul, in the previous verses, explained that he is pressing toward the goal, the prize, the upward call of God, right? So Paul calls us to action in verse 17. He explains what he's doing. Now he says, you, imitate me. We should join in him with this. Now, reading this verse there are usually two initial reactions that we see. And the first is, and I hear many people say, it seems like Paul is being a little prideful right now. It seems as Paul is, is saying, look at me, look what I'm doing, now follow me because I'm doing such a good job, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, my wife sing she sings up here many, many Sundays, um, but she's a wonderful singer, right? Um, and I've told her again and again that singing, someone who sings well, might as well be magic to me. Like, I don't understand it. Like, I can't force myself to sing well. So for me to come to Holly and be like, imitate me like I sing, well, first, everyone would leave when she sings if she sounded like me. But two, I don't, I don't have it figured out. I, I can't sing well. I can't, I, can't even do, I can't even give her advice on how to sing. So what position am I? And Paul is saying to imitate how he's living. So why is he not just saying imitate Christ, right? Why is he not just saying pointing to Christ? Why is he saying me? And the second reaction that we hear a lot is, oh man, Paul is pretty heavyweight Christian, right? I mean, earlier we see um, some of his qualifications. Um, I don't know if I can follow Paul, right? Am I called to be a missionary then? Am I called to leave everything? Am I called to um, go to dangerous areas because of this? That's That's a tough calling for many. I don't think that's what Paul means by this statement. And to help us understand exactly what Paul is trying to get at here in verse 17. I think it's important for us to look back and kind of track his argument from the beginning of the chapter and see the entire flow of it. Look in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He begins and he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he says, and I, I want to make sure that we understand this, he says, 
We are the people who worship by the Spirit of God, and verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. I think that's a key phrase to understand his argument throughout chapter 3. Paul goes on to explain in chapter 3 that these people, these people opposite of him are people who put confidence in the flesh, right? As a side note, he states that if putting confidence in the flesh was something that we should do, Paul would be the best at that. He would have all the qualifications. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee with great zeal for the law of Moses. He persecuted the early church, right? He has all the qualifications. But he goes on to say none of that matters. In verse 8, he says, verse 8 of chapter 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse nine, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Where does Paul's righteousness come from? It comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The next few verses, like we said, goes on to pressing forward out of obedience, not out of obligation, right? So he's forgetting what lies behind him, his pedigree, his persecution of the church, and looking forward to Jesus. That's what Paul is doing. He is shedding off all of his confidence in the flesh, and he is placing his trust on Christ alone. And that's what we see in verse 9. On Christ alone. Then in verse 17, he says, We are to imitate him. Not the actions of Paul, not the fact that he does all these great works or his knowledge of, uh, of, of God, who he is, but we are supposed to shed ourselves of our physical accomplishments, not put any trust in those for salvation. We are to place our faith and trust in Christ and his completing work on the cross, and nothing else. So that's Paul's argument. He says, don't put your faith, I, I put away my, my um, confidence in my flesh. I, I press on to Christ, do the same thing. Imitate me as an example of someone who follows Christ, and, and that's it. So that's what Paul is getting at. He's urging him, urging us to place any confidence within, not to place any confidence in the flesh, but Christ alone. Then he goes on to an interesting point later on in verse 17. He says in verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is wanting the people within the church to be that example as well people that they see, they know day to day, not just Paul, every Christian who places their faith in Christ and him alone is an example we should look to to help build us up, to not put our confidence in other things apart from Christ. That's why it's important for us not to only say correct things, to understand who God is, but to live a life that reflects that truth in our lives. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul has already introduced Timothy in this book of 
of Philippians, as a leader, as someone who is called, in, verse, in chapter 4 of verse 11 through 16, he's giving, this is a, a different letter where he's giving Timothy advice. He says in verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul urges Timothy to be a right example for fellow believers because people are watching. And we have to know as a church that people are watching us. People within the church are watching us as examples. Even if we don't look to ourselves as examples, they are watching us. They are seeing what we say and seeing if our actions back that up. The world is looking at the church right now. They're they're looking for us to fail. They're looking for things to point out and say, hypocrites, I knew it. I mean, we look and say, we are hypocrites. That's why we need Jesus. But we are called to be an example, to say, I am fully relying on Christ, and that's it, so that others may follow that example with us. So we are called to do that. We are called to be examples for each other. In verse 17. Verse 18, we see this next point. We persevere against the enemies of the cross. So Paul, in verse 18, switches his attention from telling them to imitate those around them to a warning. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he makes a point that we must imitate Paul, other believers, not having confidence in our flesh because there are many that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So this is where it gets practical for us daily. According to Paul, there are many people out there who live in complete contrast of the description that Paul gives us of the people of Philippi. Not only are they they complete contrast, but they are actively against Jesus and his gospel. Verse 18. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They are enemies. The implication, implication of this is very clear. These enemies of the cross are not neutral to us, Christian believers. They intend to lead believers away from Christ and their faith, which is why it's important for us to resist them, to fix our eyes on Christ, to not 
fall into the temptation of believing that we somehow could add to salvation or somehow make it better or have confidence in ourself for salvation. And in verse 19, he, he goes on, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In verse 19, we get this better description of who these people are. Now, there is some debate of who exactly these people are. Um, scholars and preachers throughout the years have have come to essentially two different people these people can be. And I believe it's good for us to talk about both examples because I think it'll help us understand a bit more about this. The first option that these people may be, and Paul speaks about in verse 2 of chapter 3, many people believe that they are the same people Paul talks about. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, By implication, they have confidence in their flesh. These people, many people believe, are Judaizers or people who are trying to add to the gospel by works of the law. By way of action, they are trying, according to Galatians, where they're also addressed, add circumcision to the gospel among other things of the law. They, as expressed by Paul, were placing their confidence in their actions and flesh for salvation. Now, the context up to this point kind of makes sense that these are the people Paul is talking about. Think of the entire context of Paul's argument. Not those in verse 2, or in verse 2, they were placing confidence in the flesh, and his whole argument is, don't do that. This is such a temptation for people in the church today. People who grow up in the church, maybe it's, begin to attend church regularly. We see religious, religious zeal all around us. We at times forget how bad we used to be and how much Christ has changed us. We say to ourselves, I go to church all the time. I serve as much as I can. I give to the church. And then we remember what Paul is saying, though, Earlier in the verses, right? All of our actions, when we try to add it to Christ's work on the cross, is rubbish. It's worthless compared to the work of Christ. It is literally as if we're holding up trash to the one true God and saying, is this good enough? In comparison to the work of Christ. And Galatians 5, 4 tells us how serious this is. Paul says if you do this, you are cut off from the grace of of God, from Christ himself. The second possibility of these people and who they are, I think makes makes a little bit more sense as we look at verse 19. Their Their end, the enemies of the cross, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So these people, whoever they are, their God is their belly, right? So Paul uses the words to paint a broad picture of who these people are. They're clearly motivated by their own fleshly desires, and they serve themselves. The reference to their belly is not exclusive to just overeating. 
but it refers to something much broader. They live for the pleasure of the body. And we all know people like this, right? They care only about themselves, how they are feeling, things that make them happy, whether they have food, things, whether that be drugs, alcohol, anything that they're trying to do to add or have an excuse to do. Paul uses an interesting phrase in verse 19. He says, their glory is their, they glory in their shame. And Paul is trying to say that they should be ashamed of their actions, but they're actually proud of it. They care only for themselves, what makes them happy. Eventually, destruction is coming their way, and they are proud of it. They draw attention to this. Paul sums it up in the last part. He says they have their mind on earthly things. That's what they care about, things that are here right now. Not on spiritual things, not on heavenly things. We need to ask ourselves, do we fall in one of these two categories? Are we drawn to a religious zeal that comes on legalism where we're no longer thinking of Christ and his work on the cross or are we trying to use Jesus as an excuse for our actions, for our sin? I was thinking about not including this but it's been on my heart lately. And before I say this, I do wanna be careful before you start to tune me out. I don't want to paint these broad strokes against this practice or even think that it's bad the majority of the time. But I know many people in my life, as I'm sure that you know as well, that you know aren't living for Christ, not living the way a Christian should be. And if you ever try to speak to them about this, explain the gospel to them, What's the majority of people's answers? Well, when I was 10, I walked down the aisle, said a couple words, so I'm good. I have Jesus. We're good, right? That's all I needed to do. I was having this same discussion with a few coworkers not too long ago about church. And one younger lady who expressed no remorse for her sin said, I haven't been to church in 20 years, but I went to VBS one time and I said these words, so I'm good, right? And honestly, not a lot of things make me, make my heart break because I know she thinks she's so close, but she is so far from the truth. There's nothing wrong with making a profession, right? There's nothing wrong with walking down the aisle. I actually think that's a good thing. Express it to the church. Have accountability. However, we need to make sure that we're not placing our faith in an action that we did and saying a few words, but we are placing our faith in the life, burial, and resurrection and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and that alone because that's the only thing that's gonna save us from our sins. We move on to our last point in verse 20. We patiently wait for Christ. 
Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in direct opposition to these people, whose end is destruction, who have their mind set on earthly things, our Christian citizenship is in heaven. For us to understand this point a bit more, we have to understand where this book was written to. Who, who is, was it written to? The people in Philippi were part of a Roman colony. And they were very proud to be Roman citizens. Just like many people today are proud to be Americans. Nothing wrong with being proud to where you're from. But there was a lot of perks in being a Roman citizen. We remember Paul in Acts 22, right before he's about to be whipped, he looks back and he says, is this, is this lawful to do to a Roman citizen? And everyone got scared. Said, oh, that's a Roman citizen. We're not, we're not, going, we're not gonna do that. We're very sorry. And they release him. And Paul is telling him, don't be wrapped up in that because that's not where our true home is. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here. And why is this such a big deal? Well, Paul expresses this idea to contrast who we are compared to these other people. Their citizenship is on earth. We are foreigners. This is not our home. Our God is not our belly, but the one true God. That is who we're trying to please because we love him. We follow after him. Their glory is their shame. Ours is much glorier than that, the one true God. And we set our mind on heavenly things. We think about who God is, what he is doing. While we are here, we look up and we await our Savior. Not for him to come back and take us away so we don't have to deal with any of this, but to come back and make all things right. Christ has promised to return so that he will fully reign, bring his kingdom with him, and make all things right. We see that in Hebrews 1. He's currently reigning, but one day he's going to come down and bring his full kingdom here. And we are waiting for that to happen because we know he will make all things right. And we go on to verse 21. He gives us a, a promise as we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what will he do? He, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And in this verse, very quickly, I want to highlight two things. One, during the entire argument that Paul has presented in not placing our trust in, in the flesh, in our works, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the question comes up, how are we going to do that? More to the point, what's different in the next life compared to this life? Are we going to just be better by force of will to overcome our struggles after, he, after his return? The answer, of course, is we aren't. Christ will. During his second coming, he will come back and complete and transform our bodies to be like his glorious bodies. I don't know exactly what that means. Scripture doesn't give us a full detail of what that's going to look like. 
but we know that we'll be made perfect like he's perfect. Not a God, but a perfect body. Same idea that he presents in Philippians 1.6, right? Paul tends to repeat himself when it's a big idea. He who started a good work will, will complete it. It's God who starts it. At the end, it's God who completes it. And two, he does this by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So why do we as Christians have such confidence in this saying? Why are we so sure in what Christ has promised to us today? It's because Christ is all-powerful. It says that he has the power to subject all things to himself. So everything in the world he's going to make right. He upholds the universe. So no matter what we're dealing with in this life, Christ will make it right if we trust in him. He will transform our bodies no longer to sin. Preacher, I heard a preacher once say, there may be sins within your heart that have long resisted control. Do with them as you will. They still defy you. But if you will hand over the conflict to Jesus, he will subdue them. He will bring them under strong subject hand. Be of good cheer. What you cannot do, he can and he will. We can have confidence that Jesus, by his power, will make all things right and complete what he has started. What a glorious thing that we can trust in today. So let us pray as we reflect on that. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your truths that you have promised to complete the work that you have started in us, that we can have full confidence in your work, in your promise because of who you are, because of the character of, of you, Lord, of the things that you say they will, that you will do. You will keep your promises. And we thank you for that. We love you. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen.